1: See what FedEx can do for your business.
2: Absolutely, positively FedEx. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington and this week on Face the Nation, the midterm elections are just hours away and candidates are spending the weekend barnstorming their states with some of the biggest names in politics. Democrats argue democracy is on the line. Republicans say the party in power is wrecking the economy. It's a mad dash to get out the vote, and the stakes are high as both parties vie for control of Congress for the next two years. It's all just ahead on Face the
3: Nation. Good
2: morning and welcome to Face the Nation. The most important and probably most competitive midterm election in years is now down to the wire. More than 39 million votes have already been cast and across the country, candidates are out in full force, hoping to persuade the persuadable, turn out their true believers and perhaps their most difficult challenge, explain to people why this election is so important and why they need to vote. In their words,
4: Here is what it comes down to. They came into office and they
5: created the worst inflation crisis that we have seen in four decades. The Republicans like to talk about it, but what's their answer?
6: What's their economic policy? They want to gut Social Security. They
7: want to gut Medicare. They want to give rich folks and big corporations more tax cuts. Young couples want to make that first investment for a starter home. They can't afford the interest rates. We have families all over the Commonwealth worried about crime, so much so they won't send their kids outside. Your right to choose is on the ballot. Your right to vote is on the ballot. There's something else on the ballot. Character.
4: Character's on the ballot. You heard
1: them say, the biggest threat to democracy is voting for the Republican. Are they serious? The biggest threat to democracy is having uh, Joe Biden in the White House.
2: The main event is Tuesday. Control of the House, which has been shifting in Republicans' favor in these last weeks. They need five seats to take over. And control of the Senate, where just one turnover will put them on top. We are tracking 10 key battleground races, five of which are hotly contested toss-ups. Our Chris Van Cleve is in Arizona. Our Nicole Killian is in Georgia. And our Robert Costa has been reporting in Pennsylvania. And that's where we begin this morning.
8: It's a choice, a choice between two vastly different visions of America. It's a choice that's as competitive as ever. Right now, the Senate race between Republican Mehmet Oz and Democrat John Fetterman could not be closer. Three presidents barnstormed the state this weekend.
7: If you want to stop the destruction of our country and save the American dream, then this Tuesday, you must vote Republican in a giant red way.
8: On the road from the campus of Penn State to the suburbs of Philadelphia, voters told us that the economy is front and center. Are you feeling economic pain in your life? Yes. I'm a, you know, fixed income. Betterman, who is recovering from a stroke in May, says that voters who want to blame Democrats for inflation should think again.
4: What I would say to them is is that you need a senator that is going to push back against corporate greed and the kind of price gouging as well too. I mean,
9: like that this is my point.
8: Oz has courted frustrated voters. Last night near Pittsburgh, he urged his supporters to win over neighbors Thank by asking them, them if they're happy with the nation's direction. I want you to contact Ten people. Do it at church.
7: Do it before the Steelers game. Just find the
8: time. And he- but the Pittsburgh Steelers don't play this week, and the remark gives Oz's critics another chance to claim he is out of
3: touch. This is Chris Van Cleveland, in Arizona, where both the Senate and governor's races appear to be in dead heats. He's He's battling for his political life, Senator Mark Kelly rallied in Phoenix with First Lady Jill Biden.
0: Women have lost a constitutional right. And that is taking us
3: in the wrong direction. Republican challenger Blake Masters has closed the gap by hammering Kelly on the economy, crime, and the border.
4: Mark Kelly, Joe Biden, they've opened up our
3: southern border. They've given our sovereignty over to the Mexican drug cartels. Carrie Lake is a rising star in the Republican Party and one of three election deniers at the top of the state's GOP ticket. Democrats have seized on that. Democracy as we know it may not survive in Arizona. That is quite a statement that you are a threat to democracy.
1: I wonder what he'd call Hillary Clinton because she's denied so many past elections and she's already denying the next election in 2024. We have the right. We have the rights to question our government and our elections. It's called the First Amendment, and I intend to continue to use
3: that right. Her opponent, Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Uh,
9: Carrie Lake is focused on being as extreme as possible, whether it's the issue of abortion, whether it's the 2020 election.
3: Starkly different campaigns on a collision course over the future of Arizona.
5: I'm Nicole Killian in Georgia. From the great city of Georgia, Herschel Walker. It was a homecoming for Herschel Walker at the University of Georgia, where the former football star was game ready.
6: Just like the Dawgs are going to win today, that's what's going to happen on Tuesday. The way to have a voice in a democracy is to
5: have. A vote. Democratic Senator Rafael Warnock and Walker are locked in a heated contest that could determine control of the U.S. Senate. I'm here to tell you we've got the power, Georgia. Yeah. In the governor's race, it's a rematch between Democrat Stacey Abrams and Republican incumbent Brian Kemp. Polls tell us that this is a tight
6: race. We need a big turnout on election day.
5: More than two and a half million Georgians have already voted a state record, but here in Cobb County, elections officials say more than a thousand absentee ballots were never mailed, calling it a critical error. They blame overworked staff, but say that's no excuse. And they're working to contact impacted voters. Margaret
2: Nicole Killian. Chris Van Cleve and Robert Costa. Thanks to all of you. We turn now to Keisha Lance Bottoms, the former mayor of Atlanta. She now serves as a senior advisor to President Biden, but the White House tells us that this morning she's appearing only in a personal capacity. Good morning to you.
10: Good morning. Thank you for
2: having me. You said last month you were concerned about a lack of voter enthusiasm in Georgia, but the secretary of state says there is a historic level of turnout. What does that signal to you now?
10: Well, I'm glad that people are turning out to vote. When I said that last month, I was sounding the alarm. And we have seen a record number of people turn out in early vote. But we still have an election on Tuesday, and we cannot let up until this election is over. I was on the ballot five years ago, seven points down going into Election Day, and I won by less than 800 votes. It doesn't matter what the polls say. People still have the ability to show up to vote on Tuesday and to make a difference in Georgia. The thought of Herschel Walker going to the Senate is frightening. Uh,
2: That is a Republican candidate for the Senate. Uh, Black voters helped turn Georgia blue back in 2020 uh, and send two Democratic senators here to Washington. How do you explain to black voters now who are so key in Georgia um, that they should help support the party, given that uh, when Democrats held the majority for these past two years, top priorities like police reform and voting rights really haven't been addressed?
10: Well, we have to remember that there's been a very thin margin, but there have been a number of issues that have been addressed that impact not just African-American voters, but voters across this country. Student debt relief, $10,000, $20,000 if you are Pell Grant eligible, A vast majority of African-American students are Pell Grant eligible. There's also uh, been a a reduction in prescription drug costs. Insulin will be capped at $35 a month, $2,000 a month annually. Starting in January.
2: Absolutely, starting in January. The the student debt relief is is caught up in, in the courts, and you know, a part of dispute.
10: Uh, They are caught up in the courts because Republicans are pushing back against relief to American families across this country. African-American voters are key in Georgia. Twenty nine percent so far have shown up in early vote. That means that there are a lot of people left out there, not just African-American voters, but voters across the state who can still show up on Tuesday and make a difference in this election. And that's what Democrats will need in Georgia uh, for us to continue to send Raphael Warnock to the Senate and also to have Stacey Abrams elected as governor.
2: In our polling, we see consistently that it is the economy and inflation that are top of mind for voters. Uh, The president said just a few days ago that he has passed so many good things, but people haven't realized how good they are yet. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin said the truth is Democrats have done a poor job of communicating our approach on the economy. DNC advisor Cedric Richmond, you know him well, he told CBS the president's message of what he's been able to accomplish has not gotten out there. Hillary Clinton, just said, the work done by Democrats is impressive, but we got to get that message across more effectively. If the policies are so good, why is communicating them such a problem?
10: Well, it's been a very difficult couple of years. We have been in the midst of a pandemic. There's been a lot of misinformation flooding the airwaves. Uh, We see it in, in ways not just on television, but we're seeing it through YouTube, we're seeing it on other social media platforms, so it is more difficult to get the message out. But I'm sitting here today getting the message out. This administration, Democrats in Congress, have delivered for the American people. And to turn back the clock and not allow us to keep pushing through uh, will be devastating for people across America. If we want prescription drug costs to remain low, then we need Democrats in Congress. If we want voting rights finally passed in Congress, Mm -hmm. we need Democrats in Congress. If we don't want a national ban on abortion and for doctors and healthcare providers to be sent to prison for offering an abortion to a woman whose life may be in danger, then we need Democrats in Congress. And that's the message that we will continue to push out, not just through election day, Uh, But beyond, because we know that elections happen quite frequently and Mm -hmm. we can't have people so discouraged that they think their votes don't matter.
2: President Biden said this week at a fundraiser, if Democrats do lose in the midterm, so he's entertaining, it is a real possibility. He said it'll be a horrible two years. The good news is I'll have a veto pen is complete gridlock what America needs to prepare for.
10: Well, we know that President Biden ran on being able to work across the aisle. So, of course, American people want us to be able to get things done. But when you have Republicans say that they will pull back aid to Ukraine, that their uh, their entire platform is based on doing what Joe Biden doesn't want done. That's not what the American people want. We want progress in this country. And we want leaders who believe in democracy. We don't want leaders who deny mm-hmm. elections. I heard uh, Carrie Lake say that people have a right to question their government. They absolutely do. But they don't have a right to overthrow their government in the way that we saw that on January 6th. So when you have election deniers who have the, who may go to Congress, who may be elected to statewide office, we have one in Georgia, Bert Jones, who's running for lieutenant governor, an election denier, uh, that's, that's not just a danger to Democrats. That's mm-hmm. a danger to everyone who believes in what this country stands for.
2: Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you for joining us this morning. And we go now to Newfields, New Hampshire, and that states Republican Governor Chris Sununu, who is up for re-election on Tuesday. Uh, welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, governor, uh, our public polling that we're looking at indicates that you're likely to keep the governor's seat after Tuesday. Um, back in 2021, you canceled your own inauguration due to security threats. Um, you've personally experienced the threat of political violence. I'm wondering how concerned are you in this moment now? And will you hold an, an inauguration if you win again?
11: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So a t- couple things here. Obviously, with um with uh, speaker Pelosi and, and what happened recently I think that is kinda re um, looking at everyone's kinda looking at what this political violence is is on both sides it's everywhere the heat is too high all across America good leadership brings that down I'll, I'll be holding my inauguration fully plan to do so uh, but again we got to as leaders bring the temperature down uh, it's okay to disagree but um, at the end of the day you gotta be able to move forward and we fully plan to do that here in New Hampshire
2: Okay. I want to come back to that topic in, in a moment. But first, uh, inflation, is top of mind. New England is facing its highest energy costs in more than 25 years, could be a cold winter. Um, your largest utility in the region is asking the White House to prepare emergency measures to prevent a natural gas shortage this winter. Um, what, what's the federal response been so far? And are you at the state level prepared for, for what could be a safety threat?
11: Yeah, I'll say the federal response so far has has been uh, very underwhelming. Um, All the governors got on the phone recently, about a month ago, with the Secretary of Energy and try to talk about what those opportunities were in terms of increasing natural gas. New England is really at the end of the line for natural gas, right? All of our natural gas comes through Albany. And in previous years, if there was a high demand or a big cold snap, folks come home, they turn their heat on, the Marcella Shell would increase production. But no one's incentivized to do that. There's no, no uh, opportunity to do that right now. And I think that's where a lot of the utilities, and rightly so, are telling this administration, you've put policies in place, it's having a, a very drastic effect on energy and fuel oil prices today, and likely is just going to get worse. So we need to see something across New England. There's nothing political about energy prices, right? But when you have all the ability in the world to produce your own fuels and refuse to do it, obviously, folks in New England are quite frustrated.
2: Well, there's record production right now, um, as you know, uh, but this is a very yeah, real problem. And, yes, and
11: because of the Jones Act, because of, and because of the Jones Act that is this antiquated 100 hundred year old uh, union driven policy that President Biden refuses to get rid of, we have very minimal opportunity to bring natural gas from even parts of our own country and land it right here uh, in, in New England. So it's not just New Hampshire, it's Massachusetts, it's Maine, it's all of these states that are, that are feeling record high prices because mm-hmm. again, we've shut down natural gas plants, we've disincentivized fossil fuels. It's, look, we all wanna transition into renewables. And of course, that's a very smart thing to do, but it must be a transition. This administration went all or nothing. So that's why you see you take costs twice as much to fill your gas tank, your fuel oil, your energy prices. And in New England, when it gets cold, it's going to be there's going to be some real pain uh, for all of us. And again, we're just asking the administration to reverse some of these policies and incentivize more Mm -hmm. production and more natural gas through Albany, New York to get us what we need.
2: Uh, President Biden, in one of his closing arguments, uh, is framing this election as protecting democracy against extreme Republicans. Listen
4: the extreme MAGA element of the Republican Party, which is a minority of that party, as I said earlier, but is this driving force, is trying to succeed where they failed in 2020,
8: to suppress the right of voters and subvert
4: the electoral system itself.
2: Do you agree that parts of your party are emboldening violence and posing a threat to democracy?
11: Look, what is shocking to me about all of this is you have the Democrat Party, which is now using the president of the United States, not as leader of our country, but leader of their party as a political tool right before the election to drive and effectively tell half of America uh, that they're too extreme for America. You think the MAGA element of the Republican Party is half
2: of America? Because I wouldn't necessarily put you in that half.
11: No, well, well, definitely not. But again, to say that, that extremism belongs in one party and it doesn't it appear in the Democrat Party is, is nonsensical. You're Nobody saying buys the party is all one now, on Unified. both sides.
2: That extreme MAGA is part of the Republican Party's ideology.
11: No, no, absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. No, but it seemed like that's a general. It's what an minority. But what I'm saying is extreme. No, 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 definitely not. Extremism is on both sides. And for the President of the United States to come up. And be more of a political tool as opposed to a uniter. Remember, he got elected because he said he was mm-hmm. going to unite folks, not threaten them. He was going to bring everybody together and get stuff done, and not polarize this country, which is exactly what has happened. Okay. If that was not the reality, then Democrats wouldn't be in for the rude awakening. They're going to come. That it's going to come Tuesday, but it is coming, and not because of politics, because of what is happening in people's homes, what's happening at their yeah. kitchen tables, what's happening with trying to balance a checkbook. And the president has to take a lot of responsibility for that. It's easy to blame just blame but, extremism. But most of us are not extreme.
2: Okay. Well, President, former President Donald Trump is uh, expected to announce his candidacy for the presidency. CBS is reporting that that could be within a matter of days. What does that do to your party? Does anyone have a chance of actually beating him in a Republican primary?
11: What does it do to our party? Nothing. Nothing. It'll have no effect on anything. And I mean that quite sincerely. First off, uh, announcing you're going to run for office between an election and Christmas is a terrible idea. <laughs> because one thing I can say for America is we're all going to be really happy one way or the other that the election is over come Tuesday. And everyone's going to want to take a breath and re-engage with their families and deal with some really serious issues. And then well, politics you know, really gets back into the mix of things in early 23. Whether the p- President Trump decides to run or not, it's not going to make any difference in terms of the fact that you're still going to see eight to maybe even a dozen other candidates jump in the race he doesn't keep anybody out of the race right so it's still going to be I think on both sides I think I don't think President Biden is going to run again I think on both sides of the aisle you're going to have maybe a dozen individuals over the next six to nine months come out and decide to run
2: well and your names floated as one of them potentially I know you're not going to give me an answer to that question right now um, but (laughs) you did turn down the invitation to run for Senate Um, Republican leader Mitch McConnell has voiced some concern about candidate quality in this midterm election. You told the Washington Examiner that the Republican majority would just obstruct President Biden until 2024. You didn't want to be a roadblock for two years. You're setting pretty low expectations for what a Republican majority would actually mean. Um, Is that what we should expect? Just nothing for two years? No,
11: look, I think... No, I think both sides of the the aisle in Washington have set a horribly low expectation for Washington. I mean, think about it, they pass, one way or another, they pass a bill, Republicans or Democrats or both, and we we cheer it. It's supposed to be this great, great success because they got something done. It, It is just an absolute gridlock mess there on both sides of the aisle. So as a governor, I can have so much more impact on what is happening on the ground level, redesigning systems, implementing better me- mm-hmm. mental health services, implementing better uh, opioid services, whatever it might be. And this is New Hampshire, yeah. and if you spend, anyone who spends more than 10 minutes in New Hampshire knows, not, not an easy place to leave. So I just wanna get stuff done. If I'm gonna put my family through, the difficulties of public service and all that comes with it, I'm sure it's not going to get something done. And you can do that far Mm -hmm. more effectively as a governor than you can as a senator or congressman. Now, leadership can change that. Leadership in Washington can absolutely change that on both sides of the aisle, and I think that's what America's looking for.
2: All right. Um, Sounds like we'll be talking to you again, Governor. Thank you for your time today. Um, We're joined now by Chris Krebs, former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. He's a CBS News uh, expert and analyst. Good morning to you, Chris. Good to have you back. Um, How do you react to this idea of of President Biden characterizing the MAGA element of the party as an extreme threat to democracy?
4: The area that I'm most focused on right now is the undermining of the legitimacy of American elections. And Governor Sununu mentioned leaders need to stand up and and speak truth to power and and particularly the elements of the, the GOP that continue to repeat countlessly debunked. Claims. I mean, we even have the GOP candidate for Governor Kerry Lake in uh, Arizona just the other day making a, a joke about there's no way that President Biden got 81 million votes. In fact, he got more than 81 million votes. Uh, but the point here is that we do need leaders like Governor Sununu to stand up and say that this is not acceptable behavior in uh, American democracy and that we need the, those that continue to push these narratives for clout, for political influence, for for money, for fundraising, Mm -hmm. uh, that that they need to let it go. And we need to move on if this American experiment is going to continue.
2: Well, uh, we're going to continue this on the other side of that. But just to your point, there are 308 Republican candidates who have raised doubts about the integrity or validity of the last election. They're standing for office now. There's a reason they are using that (laughs) as a political message. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So stay with us on Face the Nation. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We return to our conversation now about election security with CBS News cybersecurity expert and analyst Chris Krebs. Um, Chris, I want to talk about something that's happening right now. Uh, Social media has already changed the way we communicate and certainly our political world. President Biden said a few days ago that he has concerns about billionaire Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. He said the platform spews lies all across the world. There's no editors anymore in America. There are no editors. How do we expect kids to be able to understand what is at stake? It's not just kids, right? Um, What concerns do you have about this happening just days before the election, these changes to Twitter?
4: Well, I think, I think the government, for one, has a mechanism by which they can review the acquisition. The Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States can take a look at, particularly the second and third ownership positions in Twitter, uh, including Saudi Arabia. That is something that I'm assuming that the Treasury Department is taking a look at right now, see if they can put in place a national security agreement or even potentially unwind uh, the purchase. But I think more specifically to what's happening right now with Twitter, I think there are, kind of, there are two elons that we're seeing. There's the public Elon that's, you know, trolling and saying $8, please, on all the complaints about some of the shifts in the the, uh, moderation and other activities. Then there's what's happening behind the scenes, the conversations with civil rights groups, with advertisers, with the teams, which perhaps may be a little bit more stable. And I think if you look at the platform itself right now, not a whole lot has changed. That may not be a popular opinion, Mm -hmm. but I think the reality is that most you haven't seen too much of a change in the moderation. Now, the concern, though, yeah, is what happens tomorrow where you can buy the blue tick for eight dollars a month. The and Twitter just, blue
2: for our viewers who don't use Twitter. Right. A blue check is a, a sign of credibility.
4: It has historically been a marker of trust in that Twitter has said we have confirmed and authenticated the identity of this person, which tends to be a politician or a news media personality or a journalist, uh, an academic, or someone that may be a popular voice in certain civil rights, civil liberties issues. Now you
2: can buy it for eight bucks a month.
4: And along with a number of other features of editing and longer form video posting. But again, to have such a dramatic shift in that marker of trust, now you can buy it in advance of, as we've been talking about, a very contentious and important election. It opens the information space to a broader uh, community of influencers, clout chasers, election denialists. And, and foreign is, actors. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've seen reports lately of Russia, China and Iran back at their old tricks, mm-hmm. and it is going to create a, com- a very chaotic environment
2: um, to that point in 2018. 20- 18, during the midterms, Cyber Command took offensive operations to take out Russian trolls who were spreading misinformation. Um, the New York Times has a story today saying Russia's back at it. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that say to you about U.S. defenses?
4: Well, I think, so Recorded Future and Grafica, two research firms have released uh, information that Russian bots, trolls associated with the Internet Research Agency, which is a group that targeted six, the 2016 and the 2018 election, are back at it and are undermining, this time, Democratic candidates for uh, Senate in some of the, the, the more contentious races. Uh, I think what it says is that the, uh, the, there's a broader community of actors they recognize that political discourse is very divisive here in the U.S., and they have more opportunities, uh, probably than ever before, to continue to undermine confidence, to create chaos, which is really their primary objective here, is not necessarily that a winner wins, but that we've all lost, lost confidence, and they degrade the American dim, uh, you know, democracy experiment.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, there are also a number of sitting senators, uh, and uh, of no, Ambassador Richard Grinnell of Former President Trump's acting director of national intelligence has been posting some misleading information. That's him on the screen about the election. He said any state which doesn't count all the votes and announce the winner Tuesday night is incompetent.
4: So so all 50 states then by that formulation?
2: Because what you're saying is just the fact that votes are never finalized on uh, election night. But why do you think someone who knows better, is posting something like that.
4: Well, whether he knows better, I I can't assume that. But the point here is that it's for clout chasing. It's for influence. There is a reward system and structure set up right now within the far right of the GOP that provides additional engagement. So you, you tweet something like that and you can see your likes, your retweets, your amplification really take off. And if you're just talking about some other, you know, more mundane domestic issue, nobody cares. But there's a reward system and incentive structure that's set up where exactly this sort of messaging is, is rewarded. It's, it's encouraged. And, and this is, again, going back to Governor Sununu's comments. We need leaders to lead. We need the presumptive leaders of the Republican Party to stand up and say this is unacceptable. This is not how it works. We need to be good faith actors in this process. And unfortunately, leaders aren't leading right now.
2: Chris Krabs, thank you as always for your analysis. And we will see you on election night as part of CBS coverage
1: Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com.
2: CarMax, the way car buying should be. This year, CBS News has been tracking four groups of election influencers who could prove decisive in this year's midterm campaign. One group pressured parents. They say they're anxious about the post-COVID era, particularly when it comes to their finances and their children's well-being. For a closer look at some of the concerns facing this group, we're joined now by Laura Meckler, National Education Writer at The Washington Post, Scott Gottlieb, as you know him, the former commissioner of the FDA, and a board member at Pfizer, and Emily Oster, an economist at Brown University. And she joins us from Providence, Rhode Island. Good morning to you all. Emily, I want to start with you. You wrote an article uh, about pandemic amnesty. Um You said, basically, we need to forgive public officials for what they didn't know uh, during the worst of the pandemic. You had argued early on for opening of schools when the pandemic was still raging. What do you think we need to be focused on now? Because some of the debate still seems to be stuck two years ago.
13: So I'm an economist, uh, but I'm also a parent and I talk to a lot of parents. And what I can say is right now, parents are very worried about the next steps for their kids. They see the historic test score declines. They see the declines in routine vaccination rates for kids. And they want us to be looking to solutions. They don't want to be looking to rehash the debates that we had two years ago. They want to know what investments are we going to make as a policy uh, group to fix the problems that they're seeing for their kids.
2: Well, amen to talking about solutions, but uh, we aren't, Laura, talking much about them as a country. To those uh, scores that we just heard mentioned, the Education Department reported appalling historic declines. Twenty five percent of fourth graders are below the basic level in math. Thirty seven percent were below the basic level in reading. How much of it is linked to the pandemic closures? How much of it is linked to a broader problem? And why aren't we hearing more about it?
14: Um, well, we're talking, some of us are talking a lot about it. I think that it is really important. We have seen historic declines in it, particularly in math, but also in reading. And it is certainly linked to the pandemic. Some of it is linked to the schools that were remote for an extended period of time. But even schools that were not remote also we've seen, I mean, that were not remote for very long, I right. should say, have also seen significant declines in academic achievement. So and I think that compared um, with the sort of a social, emotional, mental health um real crisis that we're seeing among um, children and teenagers right now is really
2: putting an enormous amount of pressure on schools and on families. And to your point, because we looked at it, um, New Hampshire, which opened earlier, Georgia, Florida, where schools reopened faster. They may have fared better, but they still saw declines. So there's exactly. still something happening.
14: Exactly. And I think that what most experts will tell you is that, you know, the pandemic was still happening. Even if kids were back in school. First of all, there were closures, there were quarantines. People were in and out of school. But beyond that, you know, people were experiencing loss. They were seeing stress all around them. They didn't have their normal lives. So I think that, you know, the pandemic had a deep effect on families and on children and on schools. And I think those are going to be continuing for really many years to come.
2: And I know I don't like it when people say the pandemic's over because I still feel like I'm living through this haze, Dr. Gottlieb. Um, School closures are still a live issue. I mean, we've seen upticks in RSV and flu and other viruses, and some schools have closed. In Indiana, we just saw one, Virginia. um, Should communities just take this out of the toolkit and keep schools open no matter what?
3: Well Look, we have a major epidemic of RSV, maybe peaking right now. We're going to enter into a major epi- epidemic of flu. And we haven't been taking the actions that we would normally be taking to try to mitigate these kinds of pandemics, because I think a lot of public health officials, and I think a lot of school districts are a little bit gun shy right now, given the backlash to what we did during the pandemic. Closing a school for one incubation cycle for two or three days when you had a major outbreak of flu or RSV in the past was not that uncommon. Uh, If you had 40 percent, 50 percent of the kids out of school, you might close for a day or two. Now, when a school does it in Indiana, it's national news. Um, We know hand hygiene, for example, is very effective at stopping flu transmission. Do you hear any school district talking about hand hygiene right now? We know wearing a mask if you have the flu or RSV when you go out is effective at preventing forward transmission. Nobody wants to say that. So I think that there's a lot of reluctance now, in part because of the failures of public the health messaging during the pandemic and the things we got wrong and the backlash to it. So we don't have a good solution for what we're entering right now.
2: What do you make of, of Emily's premise here that there needs to be Amnesty.
3: Well, look, I think we need to distinguish, and she was at the vanguard, to your point, at arguing for schools to open. A lot of kids got back in the classroom because of her efforts. So she's, she's advocating on behalf of others when she talks about amnesty. Um, I think we need to distinguish between um, structural failures of institutions and mistakes that were made because we were in the fog of viral war and we didn't understand the, the, the virus itself. There were institutions that failed. Uh, CDC, uh, there were a lot of systemic failures there. Even people talk about the teachers' union not working to get people back in the classroom. And then there were things we got wrong. We didn't recognize the virus was airborne. We thought it was droplet transmission, so we advocated the use of cloth masks when they weren't effective. So there were things we did wrong because we didn't understand the virus. We need to learn from that. But I think the, the structural features that we got wrong where institutions failed, that we can't move on from because we need to reform those institutions.
2: Emily, um, parental rights has been harnessed effectively by Republicans in certain places on the campaign trail. But our CBS News polling shows this is broad concern. To your point, 72 percent of those polls say they're concerned about learning declines after COVID. 72 percent said they're worried about bullying at their kids' school. 68 percent said they're worried about gun violence. 57 percent said discussions of sexuality and gender concern them. Um, There's so much concern about the classroom. What where does the focus need to be and where does it need to come from here?
13: I think that the focus needs to be on what we need to do to move forward for solutions. And, you know, to give you a concrete example, when we look at something like test scores, which many parents are very worried about, we see that over the last school year, there's been some test score recovery. But that's uneven. Some school districts have recovered to where they were in 2019. Some school districts haven't recovered at all. At this point, if we want to speak to these concerns of parents, we need to think about what are the investments we're making to figure out why have some school districts been successful? What did they do that was successful? How can we port those lessons over to districts that haven't been successful? This kind of solutions-based focus has to be where we go rather than rehashing The discussions we had two years ago. That's how we're going to find solutions and get kids back on track because it's frankly exactly as you say, kids are really suffering and we're losing time on getting them back.
2: Uh, Laura, the focus that we are hearing about the classrooms is on like the content of what's being taught in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we saw that in that 57% discussion of sexuality and gender. Is that just because it's easier to access or understand or uh, Why?
14: Uh, I think that the sort of culture wars that have gripped schools in the last couple of years are now coming to the question of gender and sexuality. For a long time, we saw them um, centered on issues of race, like so-called critical race theory. And there was conversation of um, discomfort uh, among conservatives of of talking about systemic racism, for instance. And and that has kind of given way now to concerns around gender identity and transgender, um, transgender women competing in sports, Um, all of those things. I think are our concerns among many conservatives and there are a lot of um, Candidates for office and political figures who are Playing on that and mm-hmm. talking a lot about that and I think when they talk about parental rights That's what they're talking about. They don't want um, they, they will assert things like, you know, schools are trying to turn boys into girls and girls into boys. I don't think that that's true. But that's the kind of fears that um, because I think there's still a lot of discomfort with the idea of um, questions around gender identity and um, there are people really working to um, Tap into that.
2: Yeah, I mean, what Emily has argued is like we need data on how to make up for educational deficits.
14: Well, this has nothing to do with that. that that's I mean, on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, right, exactly. I mean, yes, that is the core problem facing education today, right now. Actual academics: Can kids do math? Can kids read at the levels they need to? Those are skills you're going to need on to, into your education and for and into life. Um, these other things are just much more emotional and tapping into sort of these culture war conversations that we're having in this country,
2: Doctor. I mean, when you look at parents, it's like a formula shortage, uh, completely incoherent messaging from the CDC that you just laid out here, Uh, child care shortages in part due to what's going on with um, infection rates. It it is hard not to have anger and emotion about public health and how it's communicated.
3: Look, I think that there's a pervasive sense, rightly so, that public health institutions have failed the public and that they weren't equipped to tackle the challenges that people have been facing. Um, We shouldn't have had the shortage that we had with formula. We should have responded. To it more adequately than we did. CDC didn't put out practical guidance, didn't advise families on what to do. Their requirement for six feet of distancing is what kept most schools shut well into the spring of 2021. So there's a pervasive sense that public health institutions didn't work on behalf of families. They were slow to integrate new information. And there's not, a, there's not real evidence that they've reformed themselves. There hasn't been an effort by the administration to try to, you know, try to reform, fundamentally reform CDC. CDC is working to reform itself, mm-hmm. but that's not usually the way it works. It's hard to self-organize around a new mission right. you're an agency. So I think if the administration had been more aggressive at addressing these deficits, they probably, people wouldn't feel so much angst.
2: Right. Or, or you'd need to hear that from perhaps the new Congress, the pressure to, to reform. Um, Emily, you also raise in your article the question of mandates for vaccines. Are, are, you, are you arguing for flu and COVID vaccine mandates? Because that's very controversial.
13: In the article, I discussed routine vaccinations, measles, pertussis, where we don't typically have mandates, but the rates have been very high. They've gone down over time. We haven't seen schools move to COVID vaccine mandates, and I don't expect them to. Right. And similarly, we haven't seen flu mandates, and I don't expect to see those either.
2: Okay. And I know Dr. Gottlieb also is against mandates. Of yeah, I don't of think this vaccine COVID. reaches a yeah.
3: threshold of being mandated in schools.
2: All right. Thanks. For all of you, we could do a whole hour or more on all the parental tensions right now, but we got to leave it there. We'll be back in a moment with more on how the fight over abortion rights is impacting the midterms.
7: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: We are joined now by our chief legal correspondent, Jan Crawford, and our political correspondent, Caitlin Huey Burns. Good to have you both here. At the table. Um, Caitlin, I want to start with you. You've been covering abortion access in states around the country, and that's where the decision about access will be made at the state level. Um, There are five states where abortion access is literally on the ballot November the 8th. What's the expectation on whether this election will make access looser or tighter. Yeah.
6: And in three of those states, California, Vermont, Michigan, uh, the question is whether to amend the Constitution to enshrine uh, abortion rights into law. And in the other two states, there is either a ban or attempts to criminalize it. Uh, But the biggest one I'm watching is in Michigan, that ballot measure, because there's such a competitive governor's race there with Gretchen Whitmer, the 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 incumbent, the Democrat, um, very much campaigning on this issue of abortion access and rights, trying to galvanize her base of support and reach out to those independent uh, suburban women in particular. And it's interesting because Tudor Dixon, who's the Republican running against her, is trying to say to voters, look, you can vote for this measure and also vote against Gretchen Whitmer and vote for me. The biggest question that we've been having this election cycle when it comes to ballot measures is, you know, does this actually translate to support for the Democratic candidate. I was in Kansas covering that ballot measure where we saw overwhelming turnout, where we even saw Republicans vote uh, for it. Um, But that was a direct question to voters. And so when it's on the ballot with candidates. Does that have the same effect? And I think Michigan will be an interesting test of that. We're also looking at states like Wisconsin and North Carolina that don't have ballot measures, but the makeup of the state legislatures and other competitive races there could shape how this comes out, because that's really where this is being decided. It's at the
2: state legislative level. Which is what the court intended.
9: Sure. I mean, it said that, you know, this is uh, not a federal constitutional issue. This is an issue the state should decide and leave it to the political process. And that's what we're seeing. I think what's interesting, though, is, you know, some of the the debate and the outcry among Democrats back in July uh, is kind of receded a bit. I think once people realized the Supreme Court hadn't banned abortion when it overturned Roe v.ersus Wade and that many state laws weren't really changing at all, uh, it's kind of taken a back seat to issues like crime. crime, inflation, the economy. Uh, but it does still have an impact. And then on the flip side, I think it's important to remember for Republicans what that decision has done. Had the court refused to overturn Roe versus Wade, it would have really demoralized a key segment of the Republican base. Those voters who care deeply about social issues, the pro-lifers, the evangelicals, uh, people who care about religious liberty. uh, Instead, in overturning Roe, they're galvanized. Uh, Those voters are are excited, enthusiastic about voting. And and that's an important segment for Republicans. also seeing at the national
2: level where there isn't a law protecting uh, abortion. The conversation from President Biden is, if Democrats win, I will enshrine abortion access, specifically at that 24 week, the language that was in Roe. But then you have Senator Lindsey Graham trying to start the conversation and say it's got to be up until 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. Is the bottom line that we will just not see any national law, period, that it will stay at the state's? Well, what we're seeing is both
6: sides are using it to galvanize their supporters, right? Democrats are threatening that Republicans get control and then there will be a ban. And Lindsey Graham handed them kind of a gift in saying, look, I would like to uh, implement national restrictions. Restrictions,
2: Um, but not a ban. But
6: not an outright ban at 15 weeks. Um, But I think you know, and, and you talk to Republicans and they don't want to say at this point, um, yes, I'm supportive of a national ban um, because they don't want to turn voters away that they need to attract here. Um, and it also kind of flies in the face of their argument that this should be a state's issue. Um, but there, there is no question that this is a,
2: a base amplifying uh, issue mm-hmm. and, and Democrats need it. Jen, I want to ask you about a case that is also getting politicized potentially here Moore versus Harper. Um, Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton spoke about it to a progressive group and said. It's about right-wing extremists having a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. That's a big statement. What is this case about, and what's the outcome?
9: Well, she's talking about a case that the court's going to hear arguments on next month, and it involves this kind of uh, called the independent state legislator theory, and To to opponents, that's a radical theory that would really strip state courts from having any oversight uh, into the election laws and procedures that are adopted by state legislatures for federal elections. Now, supporters of this new theory say, well, the federal constitution gives that power to the state legislatures, not to the state courts. And if you've got a problem, take it to federal court and, and they can deal with it. Uh, The question, I think, is not so much would it directly address things like seating presidential electors. The concern for opponents of this theory, and it is a serious concern um, that they have, is that if the court adopts this theory, then that sends a message. Katie, bar the door. State legislatures can do anything they want. And that, they believe, is dangerous in terms of what they may try to do uh, in some of these election laws and procedures.
2: Thank you, ladies, for tracking that for us. We'll be back in a moment. That's it for us today. We will see you Tuesday for election coverage. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Keisha Lance Bottoms, a senior advisor to the president and former mayor of Atlanta. New Hampshire's Republican governor, Chris Sununu. CBS News cybersecurity expert and analyst, Chris Krebs. The Washington Post national education writer, Laura Meckler former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and Emily Oster, an economist at Brown University. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.